0: Welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today I'm speaking with Sean Carroll. Sean is a very well-known and well-respected public intellectual, and his career has covered academia, podcasting, and popular writing. Speaking to Sean was my first real experience of being starstruck while making this podcast. I've already had the pleasure of meeting many people, you know, mostly by Zoom, Many people whose voices and faces I've known and admired for many years. But when it comes to Sean, I really grew up seeing Sean's face in documentaries, mostly in space documentaries. There was this phase when I was about 20. I think I watched every space documentary in existence over the course of about a year. And if you've ever watched any of these space documentaries, like Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman, then I'm sure you've seen one of Sean Carroll's many appearances. So I've admired Sean for many years, and it was a real treat that he agreed to be interviewed. This is another interview from the archives, so to speak. We recorded this in 2020, so when Sean says that he's approaching the second anniversary of his podcast, now it's more like the third anniversary. But I think that's the only timeline issue to flag. This episode is short and sweet. I know my cousin Elliot prefers shorter podcast episodes, you know, ones that align with the time it takes him to walk the dog. And this is one that fits that criterion. So this is one for him and for all you brisk dog walkers out there. And this episode is nice and light. We don't get into any deep philosophical issues. You know, Instead, I ask Sean about his career in academia, in podcasting, in communicating science. And I ask him for some life advice, which I trust you will find insightful. So, with great pleasure, I bring you Sean Carroll. So, I'm very excited to be here today with Sean Carroll. Uh, So, first of all, Sean, thanks for agreeing to speak with me. Um, I'm coming to this conversation with the background of history and philosophy of science, And you're obviously someone with a lot of expertise in this area, you know, both in communicating science and in thinking very deeply about the philosophical nature of scientific knowledge, whether it's epistemology or the foundations of physics and quantum mechanics. So I'm curious, how did you come to choose your career path? And when did you first have a clear idea of what you wanted to do?
1: Not sure I have a clear idea of what I want to do even yet, but I was uh, definitely launched on it very, very young. You know, I was roughly 10 years old when I started reading books uh, about the Big Bang, black holes, quarks, leptons, things like that. I'm not exactly sure why. You know, no one in my family or my school had any special interest in science or anything. Uh, But I quickly figured out that what it meant to do that for a living was to be a theoretical physicist, and that was then my goal. And here I am, um, a certain number of years later. And I don't necessarily recommend that people decide when they're 10 years old what they want to do for a living. Uh, but I basically did. Now, the uh, wrinkle is, of course, I am still evolving in what I actually specifically do for a living. So even though, broadly speaking, I'm, I do theoretical physics, uh, my focus has moved away from cosmology and particle physics a little bit towards foundations of physics, quantum mechanics, statistical mechanics, philosophy of science, complex systems, things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I see that your questions obviously straddle you know, philosophical issues and scientific issues. So I'm curious how you view the project of philosophy versus the project of science. Do you think that the two projects are similar or are there kind of greater differences between the two?
1: I think that they're different, but I think there is a region of overlap. You know, if I, I think it's a continuum. And uh, I learned this only sort of late in life. You know, I was always interested in philosophy because my interests were always in whatever the biggest questions are, whether it's science or anything else. But I thought that doing physics was the way that, you know, I personally could both do what is most useful and, you know, my own strengths, etc. But while I was an undergraduate in philosophy, uh, I had a minor in philosophy as an undergrad, but it was mostly like moral and ethical and political philosophy that I was interested in. It was only much later that I figured out there's a kind of philosophy that is more or less continuous with physics, the foundations of physics, as it's called. And this addresses some of the most interesting questions as far as I can tell, you know, the what it really means to measure a quantum mechanical system, how you do statistics in a multiverse with many different kinds of people going on, why the past is different from the future. And so once I realized that this area exists, I became more and more interested in it.
0: Uh, it's fascinating. I've studied topics and foundations of quantum mechanics myself, or I should say I've dabbled since my physics background is not very rigorous, so basically what you do is divided between kind of a, an academic life and a more public life. So I'm curious how you view those two roles. Do you find it difficult to switch between you know, the academic sphere and the public communicator sphere?
1: Yeah, again, this is something that has always been part of me. You know, I was always interested in communication and, and teaching and so forth. When I was uh, in high school, I was on the speech and debate team. And to be very honest, I was terrible at it. I was really, really bad, uh, but I practiced and I got better. And I would like to live in a world where, you know, it was part and parcel of being a professional academic, reaching out to a broader set of people. Um, but it's not. You know. We, there are people like me who do it, but there's resistance within the community uh, to doing it. You don't get credit for it. You get anti-credit, if anything. And I honestly, I don't think that everyone should do it. I'm not one of these people who say that every scientist or every professor should spend time talking to the public. There are some people who are just not good at it, uh, who don't want to do it. And it'd be a waste of their talents if they spent too much time doing it. But I think that as a field, we should respect it and we should advocate for it and we should put some um, effort behind it. So that's what I try to do. And I've always been someone who likes to split their time between many different things at once. So the idea that I do professional research and I also write books and I also be on the Internet, this has not seem weird or unusual or even difficult to me. It would be much more difficult to me if I needed to do the same thing every single day. And it's funny you mentioned splitting
0: your time. I think that really comes across when someone looks at your work, you know, that you have so many projects on the go at the same time, whether it's, you know, the Mindscape podcast or your popular books or your academic work. And I've recently become interested in work habits. Uh, I read Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, and he argues that, you know, knowledge workers need to block off long periods of uninterrupted deep work time to really achieve the focus necessary for, you know, you know, deep knowledge creation work. So I'm curious how you approach your work. You know, do you have any hacks that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not very systematic about it, to be perfectly honest. You know, again, there are people who uh, need a certain kind of routine to, to get things done, and they rigidly follow that routine, and that's very successful for them. It really works. My personality or my, you know, natural inclinations are to bounce around from thing to thing. That's what I like doing. Now, having said that, there are absolutely specific times when you need to focus on a certain project, whether it's doing a physics paper or writing a book or whatever. You know, um, very often, if I'm if I'm writing, for example, if I'm writing a book, uh, it, I need to have a few days when I'm doing nothing but that. But then I will get stir crazy a little bit after doing that, and I will want to do something else. So uh, I, I think that. I have I feel like personally rather than deciding ahead of time what my work schedule should be I have to figure out you know where I am on the particular day where my head is what I'm interested in it you know it's good to have deadlines deadlines do focus you and and, and get you to do things but uh, I like being able to choose every single day or every single hour what it is I'm focusing on
0: I agree uh, I think I'm also drawn to variety and I like to switch between various tasks whether it's podcasting or researching or writing depending how I'm feeling on the day and I think especially if I'm not feeling creative I need to switch to a more mundane routine task until I get some kind of a state of flow back. So when it comes to communicating science in your popular books I know you often focus on issues in fundamental physics and cosmology Do you find it challenging to communicate these ideas, you know, when you when you do step away from the depth of your academic work? And do you think that in popular books, is it generally is it possible to be generally faithful to the complexity of the issues? Or do you think that the result is oversimplified at times?
1: Well, I think there's always some degree of simplification unless you're just teaching like you would professional physics students uh, with all the equations and so forth, you know, like just to give one specific example, I uh, like to talk about the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, where when you observe some quantum mechanical system, the universe splits into many copies where all the different outcomes were obtained. And one question people have about that is what about energy conservation? Like where's the energy come to make all these universes? And if you know the math, the answer to that is completely trivial. It's like very, very obvious what the answer is. And it's very difficult to find the metaphorical language in which to express that. But I try, okay? So it is absolutely necessary to sort of simplify and th- there's a sort of give and take. You know, the person trying to explain it has to be able to do their best to explain what's really going on. The person listening or reading needs to be able to say, I'm doing my best to understand it, but I appreciate that this is not the full story uh it's as as close as we can get but it's still not the 100 percent thing now having said that you know my niche as an explainer of physics is a little bit more technical and specific than the average physics explainer you know so still not completely um the textbook approach but i try to give more details i try to never say you know Uh, just trust me on this. I try to always explain why certain things are true. Right now, I'm doing this video series called The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, and I actually, you know, I I made a decision early on I would have to explain calculus. I have to explain what derivatives and integrals are, and then I can use them uh, in the rest of the videos. And so they go deeper uh, than most explanations, but that's okay. That's, I think, I believe in a wide ecosystem where there's all sorts of different layers. You know, I love the book Quantum Physics for Babies. That's a great book, but it's not a book that I would be any good at writing.
0: That's very true. And I love that example where you say that the, the maths itself is more simple than the metaphor you have to construct to explain the maths. So it's not always the case that we're oversimplifying for the public. Sometimes we have to make things more complex to to find the right metaphor to explain the maths.
1: Now that's exactly right. It's not just simplification. It's a translation, right? You know, certain language that physicists use. And you're trying to translate it into ordinary language. And part of it is, you know, the math is a little bit unambiguous, but the words are always pretty ambiguous. And so if you are resistant to what you're being told and you're being told it in words, it's easier to resist. It's easier to just not believe it. Whereas the equations are just there and they're harder to wriggle out of.
0: So I think we should move on to talk about your podcast. Sure, I'd like to ask you about your own experience of running a podcast and kind of communicating these ideas on such a large platform. And I'm wondering, you know, when you started out, if you ever thought it would become a central part of your work, and how do you view it now? Is it has it become kind of a central focus, or is it is it a side project?
1: Well, it's definitely a side project in the sense that you know, honestly. Um, I record an episode in an hour or two, and I spend another couple hours editing it and putting it on the internet, and then I can move on with my life, right? And that's you know, definitely a minority of my effort. Uh, I can do it on a weekend, basically. Um, but it, it's absolutely um, the one exception to that, of course, is when I'm going to interview someone who's an expert on something that I'm not <laughs> and I need to sort of become at least knowledgeable enough to ask them intelligent questions. But to me, that was a lot of the point of doing it in the first place. You know, one of the big motivations was I had a big stack of books next to my bed that you know, I'm like, I would like to read these books, but I don't have time to do it. So now I basically incentivize myself to read all the books I ever wanted to read by asking their authors to be guests on the podcasts. And either I will read the book or at least, uh, try to get as much of the ideas as I can. And then I can ask them. And that's a much shorter route to finding out what is, what is in the book and what is in these wonderful ideas. So look, I mean, to be very honest, I know a lot more about biology now than I did a couple of years ago because I've been talking to a lot of biologists on the podcast and, uh, we're approaching the two-year mark. Um, we're approaching the second anniversary. So uh, I you know, I know a lot more about viruses and um, uh, ribosomes and things like that than I ever did before.
0: Yeah, the amazing thing about podcasting is it really opens up a way of talking to people. It was uh, Steve Levitt, who's one of the original authors of the book Freakonomics, but he now has his own podcast called People I Mostly Admire, which is excellent but it was Steve Levitt who said that he started his podcast as a way to talk to people. You know, if if he called these people at home, they'd never answer the phone. But if he said instead, you know, do you want to come on my podcast and have a chat? Then suddenly he had access to anyone he wanted in the political or economic sphere. So podcasting really opens up a conversation in that way.
1: It's exactly right. You know, when I was writing the big picture, I was writing about neuroscience and the origin of life and philosophy and things like that. Uh, and so things that I was not by training an expert in so i but i was able to talk to people and i was writing a book so that was a license for me to talk to them like i could call up jack showstack who was a nobel prize winning biologist working on the origin of life and say could i drop by your lab and talk about the origin of life i'm writing a book and he would say sure but then when the book went away when i was done like i didn't have that license anymore so the podcast definitely opens that up again and i've not and it's a The scope of ideas is more or less infinite. So I can talk to not only biologists and physicists, but also, you know, political pundits and musicians and actors and poker players. And it's been enormously fun for those reasons.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, Just a couple of questions here to finish up. This is kind of a, a broader question, but I suppose we've been going through a time of change with communicating coronavirus information to the public and we've also been going through a longer period of change over the last decade with social media. So how do you view these changing dynamics between science and society and the media? Do you think that there has been a big change in the last you know, months and years, or since the age of social media? And you know, are you overly optimistic or pessimistic about the outlook?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that it's still true as far as I can tell from surveys that have been done, that scientists are extremely trusted by the public, like one of the highest trust occupations that there is. And that's a special place to be in and we shouldn't waste it or we shouldn't ruin it. Um, An interesting new phenomenon is that through social media and also just through the use of the Internet by scientists themselves, people on the street are much more able to see how the sausage is made scientifically, right? There is this idea that scientists go off and they're in their labs or at their telescopes or whatever, and they come back with great discoveries and we believe them. And of course that was never the truth, but there was a little bit of an image of that because discoveries were presented at press conferences and they were written about, you know, and it seemed like a series of great things. Sometimes there'd be an embarrassment when the discovery would turn out not to be correct and you'd have to go back and retract it or whatever. But of course, in reality, scientists are always talking to each other. They're always trying out ideas and then falsifying them or showing that they don't work, right? Conjectures and refutations, the hypothetical deductive method. They're always arguing with each other. Scientists love to disagree and argue with each other. There's always experiments that are a little bit wrong, as it turns out later on, and so forth. And so there is uh, an important discussion among scientists, like, is it okay that people now know this, (laughs) even though it's now the truth? And, you know, part of it is very important, especially like in uh, pandemic times, because there is a a preprint server online where any scientist, any biomedical scientist can put up a paper making claims about this or that virus or treatment and they haven't been vetted, they haven't been reviewed. Uh, It's just this person puts up a paper and it's possible for the general public or the media to just take that paper and act like it's true. And that's very, very misleading. So I think that it's overall good. I think that overall, the greater transparency, um, the greater ability of scientists to talk directly to the public uh, is very, very important. There will always be a role for journalism because, again, not every scientist is good at talking to the public. So you might have a really, really important result, but not be interested in explaining it. And that's where journalism becomes really, really important. But also we need to be able to say, you know, the people, people who read about science need to improve their ability to distinguish the wheat from the chat. The fact that there's so much more information available these days means that the importance of figuring out which is credible and which is not credible is higher than ever before. Um, So I said recently on Twitter, like, I'm more and more convinced that we need to formally teach people how to tell whether something they read uh, is credible or not, right? Like, what are the sources? You know, there was recently a story about how, NASA scientists have discovered evidence of a new universe traveling backward in time. And it was just complete nonsense, but it got spread all over the place and people were like, "What what's going on with this?" And I would argue that anyone could read these articles and they could see that they were not credible even if they were not an expert scientists, but only if they have the basic toolkit for doing that. So, there's no putting, you know, there's no closing Pandora's box. There's no undoing this. The greater transparency is there, we have to train people to deal with it in an effective way.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true. One of the things I've heard about so much in this information age is that we don't need to be able to retain information anymore. We need to be able to assess that information. Yeah. So we need the tools to, you know, look at a vast amount of information and then to decide what's relevant and what's reliable rather than the old system of retaining and regurgitating information.
1: Yeah, we can't rely on the gatekeepers as much anymore. And maybe we never should have, to some extent. Fine, and, You know, if you want to make that argument, that's okay. But certainly not now. There's a lot of misinformation, a lot of con men, a lot of charlatans, a lot of simple, forgivable mistakes are out there. So it's just, there's and there's no way to, again, undo it. So everyone needs to be able to look at the information out there and decide which to take seriously and which to not. And when you have interests, when you would like to believe that one thing is true and not something else, then it's really hard to say, well, I'm not going to believe this, even though I would love it to be true. That's a very difficult skill.
0: And so my last question really is, do you have any tips for a graduate student who wants to follow in your footsteps?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very bad idea. Look, you know, um, I, 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 My tip is that graduate school and academia more generally should be fun. That's my tip. Uh, if, if it's a slog, if you're miserable, et cetera, then you're doing something wrong. But also, at the same time, uh, there is a purpose. There is an end goal. I mean, most people who go to graduate school would like to become professors or researchers or something like that, and it is perfectly okay to spend effort trying to achieve that goal. In other words, it's you know don't feel bad if you say, well, I'm I'm working on this project because uh, not only am I interested in it, but the rest of the world is also interested in it. You know, I tell my own graduate students, there's some Venn diagram out there, right? There's the set of things you think are interesting. There's a set of things the rest of the world thinks are interesting. Work in the intersection of those two things, right? Don't ignore what the rest of the world thinks. That's kind of important. And if the intersection doesn't exist, then you might want to rethink your career choices, right? You, you know, it, I would never advocate that someone go to graduate school and stubbornly work on things that they thought were interesting, but nobody else did. Unless they went into it with open eyes and said, look, I don't want a job as a scientist. I just want to like spend some time in grad school and do some fun things and move on to something else. That's perfectly okay. But if you want to have a career, then it's also perfectly okay to do things that will get you that career. It's difficult to get a job as a professional scientist or a professional academic. It is okay to work toward that goal in a very conscious way.
0: I like that. Very pragmatic advice. I think I can take that to heart. Good. (laughs) Well, Sean, thanks very much for your time and for your very considerable expertise. And I hope things are well on your side of the Atlantic.
1: All right, Jeff, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. And please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram, at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen, The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, Original Podcast Soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.